0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles, first of all, a Psalm 19. For the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart, The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, may they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we'll turn to the New Testament to first Peter chapter one. Our second reading this morning is from First Peter Chapter one, the verses thirteen through twenty five, page one thousand eight hundred and eighty-seven of your pew Bibles. First Peter chapter one, we begin reading there at verse thirteen, and this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God for all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Our text this morning is Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord. Who keeps his oath, even when it hurts. Who lends his money without usury, and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Psalm 15 is very clearly a psalm about integrity. And so we're going to get right into considering This psalm, it's about integrity before the face of God. And we're going to consider this morning why integrity matters. Why integrity matters. What integrity does, that is what it looks like, how it acts, and where integrity comes from. So, why does integrity matter? Why would David pen this psalm and... Why does it matter? Now, what is integrity? Integrity is, you might say, a unified moral character. An upright, unified moral character. So it's, it's about your heart, it's about your mind, it's about your deeds, it's about all that you do, and, and it's unified. It's consistent. The things that you say are consistent with what you think, It's consistent with what you do, and all of them are upright. All of them are right, righteous, good, God-pleasing. That's what integrity is about. Integrity is about a life of where love and good deeds flow from every corner of your, your thoughts and your words and your actions. So why does integrity matter? Well, perhaps we might ask, first of all, why integrity doesn't matter. That is, why a lot of people, why we on many occasions, don't pursue integrity. In order to to ask why does integrity matter, it's helpful to consider why doesn't integrity matter. If, if you have an eye for trends in this world things you read and see, then you'll notice that integrity is on the decline. That it's not important any longer to have a unified, upright, moral character. Uh, There are other things that are more important than that. And so integrity doesn't matter. So why not? Well, it seems that it's all about goals. It's all about what your goals are, what you want in this life, what you will pursue. Integrity doesn't matter, for example, if the goal in your life is to be rich. Integrity can take a back seat then because you've got other things to look after. If your goal in life is to fill your pockets with money to get rich and to acquire wealth, a certain amount of integrity is certainly going to help you. You're not going to get rich, being caught stealing, winding up in jail. A certain amount of integrity is going to help you, but there's going to be a certain amount of integrity that you're just not going to be able to work with because that's going to stop you from getting more money. Or perhaps your goal is to be popular. Maybe you don't want Hollywood fame. You don't want to become a rich and famous star sports figure or actor or actress or something like that, but among your peers, you want to be popular. You want to be on the inside circle. You want to know things that other people don't know. You want people to look up to you. Well, again, if this is your goal, especially if you're a member of this church, you really ought to have a certain amount of integrity, right? As if you don't have a lot of integrity, well, you're not going to be very popular in church. But at the same time there are certain moral failings there are certain moral failings that you're going to need to hold on to if this is your goal to be popular. There are some things that help you to be popular even in church. If you like to gossip that can help. You can show people that you know things that they don't and so they'll come near to you, look up to you in order to get the inside scoop. Or you can use exclusive pride. You can exclude some people while including others. That might help you to become popular among your friends. You're gonna to have to use a pragmatic sort of integrity here. So not entirely unified moral character, some integrity where, where people are going to respect that, but you can throw it out the window where, where you want to gain more popularity and certain sins are going to help you to do that. So it depends what your goal is. If your goal is to be right, then a certain amount of integrity is what you'll need, but you won't go all the way. If you want to be liked, if you want to be respected, if you want to have power and influence, all of these things are going to require a certain amount of integrity. They're also going to require a certain amount of unrighteousness. There are goals where your integrity, your unified, completely unified moral character does not matter that much to you. But it's clear that integrity mattered to David. David is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Clearly integrity matters. To the Holy Spirit. This whole Psalm is about integrity. So why does integrity matter? Well, David makes it clear in the very first verse of this Psalm when he says, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may dwell on your holy hill? There are a lot of goals that we can have in life. There are a lot of things to pursue and a lot of things that are good. David's ultimate goal, however, Leaves all those things behind. And he reveals what his goal is when he asks this question. Who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He reveals his ultimate goal and he cuts right to the heart of the matter. This is his one consuming question. This is his one consuming goal. Lord, who may live with you? Who may commune with you? How do I dwell with God? How do I live on God's holy hill? How do I live in God's presence? This was the question and the goal of David's life. Now you may ask, what is he talking about when he says who may dwell in your sanctuary and who may live on your holy hill? Well, the sanctuary that, the physical sanctuary that David's talking about is The tabernacle, the temple wasn't built yet, that would be built by Solomon. The tabernacle was the sanctuary, that was where God dwelt among his people, that's where the sacrifices were offered, that's where the priests went about their activities. The sanctuary is the tabernacle. Now during David's life, the tabernacle was, he moved the tabernacle from Nob to Gibeon. He was intending to bring it to Jerusalem Didn't quite make it there. So he brought it to Gibeon. That's where the tabernacle was. Now, what's the holy hill? Well, that's not so clear. The holy hill might refer to the the high place in Gibeon where the tabernacle was. It may also refer to Jerusalem. That's where David brought the Ark of the Covenant during his reign. He brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he, he... put a temporary tent over the ark there in Jerusalem. So perhaps it's the high place in Gibeon, or perhaps it's Jerusalem, the the holy mountain of God. But of course, while the physical things that he's referring to are the sanctuary and and the the place where the ark is, perhaps we recognize immediately, don't we, that he's not talking about a, a physical place. He's not talking about the literal tabernacle. He's not saying, Lord, what are the requirements of someone who's going to be a priest and live at the tabernacle? No, he's much more broad than that. But he's talking about what the tabernacle and what the ark symbolized for the people of God. That is the place where God dwells among his people. Place where God lives in his glory. The place where you commune with God. That's the question that David has, Lord How do we dwell with you and among you? How do we commune with you? He's talking about living life corum Deo. That's the Latin phrase for before the face of God. How do we live life before our God? That's what the sanctuary and the holy hill represented for the people of God. So, why did integrity matter to David? Integrity mattered to David because God matters to David. He recognizes that God is glorious. God is worthy to be praised. He recognizes that if there's any place to be on this earth, it's in God's grace. It's in God's presence. It's communing with God. That's where blessings are. That's where life is found. That's what David anticipates he's going to spend eternity doing. And so that's what he wants to begin to do even now in this life, in this world. David loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind. And so he deeply desired communion with God. And so he asked, Lord, how can I commune with you? Well, it's through integrity. Who may commune with God? What sort of person? David makes clear, it's a person with integrity, with that unified, upright, moral character. All the things that they do in thought, word, and deed line up and are consistent and are holy. And he describes this man there in the verses two through the first half of five. It's one sentence. And it's a very tight sentence. It's well structured. He lists nine characteristics, nine characteristics about this man. And those nine are in groups of three. So we'll walk through this, this man of integrity to understand who he is more, to understand what sort of person it is that lives and communes with God. Now, David, of course, is talking about a man here, but in talking about a man, saying he whose walk is blameless and all that, he's not meaning to exclude woman as though women cannot commune with God. He's being inclusive here. He's talking about a man of integrity, but he's including woman, he's including children, he's including all of God's people. And so I will follow David's lead and speak about integrity in terms of a man, but not meaning to exclude anyone. This is for men and women and for all who will hear. So the first group of three is the most comprehensive as he describes the one who communes with God. And he, first he says, this man's walk is blameless. His walk is blameless. Well, what does blameless mean? Well, we read Psalm 19 together. There David says, keep your servant from willful sins may they not rule over me, then will I be blameless, that is, innocent of great transgression. So someone who is blameless is innocent of great transgression. They're, They're not home to willful sins, and sin doesn't rule over them. And if you were to examine that word blameless more broadly across Scripture, you'd see that someone who's blameless is trustworthy and reliable. You can count on them. They get the job done and they get the job done right. Job, for example, was said to be a blameless man. Job was consistent in his service of the Lord. So, this man of integrity is blameless. Second, he does what is righteous. So, a blameless man, you can't accuse him of doing wrong. And a righteous man you can notice that what he does is right. He, he does what's right, particularly as Scripture describes people who are righteous. It's people who do righteousness. Righteousness as defined by God's word. It's people who follow God's commands in their lives. That that becomes characteristic of how they live. They do what is right. The righteous. So he's blameless. He's righteous. And the third one in this first group is that he speaks truth from the heart. Most other translations have he speaks truth in his heart. So this man recognizes that it's it's not all about perception, that life isn't a political campaign or something like that, that it's just about what other people hear and see about you. No, the man of integrity The person of integrity, the woman of integrity, recognizes that truth begins in the heart. It begins where no one else can see but God. And so he speaks truth there. Takes God's word and applies it there. Speaks truth to himself in his heart. Speaks truth from his heart. It begins in the heart for the person of integrity. And so these first three characteristics reveal someone who is dependable and reliable. They're not given to great sins they do what is right according to god's law and they understand that that all begins right here in the heart now this psalm most certainly is written not only just to describe some abstract person out there for us but this psalm is written for us to examine our own lives by we're to measure ourselves by this person that david is describing were to follow this way, are we blameless? Does sin rule over you? Or do you rule over sin? Are you eager and zealous to do what God's word tells you to do, what God commands? Does that become the defining characteristic of your life? And does this all begin in your heart? Or is it just an outward show? And so this psalm calls us to examine our lives the next three characteristics are about how this man of integrity uses his tongue with respect to his neighbor how he uses his words with respect to those around you and we'll have more on this this afternoon with the ninth commandment that's what the ninth commandment is all about you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor James says in the New Testament, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and and his religion is worthless. So for this man of integrity, he speaks truth from his heart, but from the overflow of his heart, his mouth also speaks what is good and right and true. And so integrity in verse three, the second group of three does not slander. Slander is stating a false charge or a misrepresentation that damages another person's reputation. The particular word that's used here is very interesting. It's a word that's also used for spying. Someone who who walks around covertly in, in, in enemy territory and finds out all kinds of things about the enemy. That same word is used here, although it's of course a little different, but the picture that it gives is someone who goes about covertly in other people's territory, but instead of being undercover and keeping their mouths closed, instead they're, they're opening their mouth and they're talking. They're talking about other people's reputations undercover, in secret, all over the place as they walk about in their life. Well, the person of integrity doesn't do this. They don't spread lies. They don't spread misrepresentation. They don't spread things about others that are going to harm their reputations. They don't spread slander. Further, they don't do their neighbor harm. They don't cause their neighbor misery. And it would seem that David is particularly speaking about how you use your tongue here as he's got this one between slander and and slur, both of which you use by words. And of course, there are countless ways that you can harm your neighbor with your words, But the man of integrity doesn't consider those. But instead, he keeps to that narrow path of ways that you can use your your words to build up others. He doesn't cause them harm. He does what's good for them. Further, he doesn't cast a slur. What does that mean? Cast a slur on his fellow man, someone who's close to him. Well, you know that there's a particular way of speaking to people that is going to cause them the most hurt. There's a particular way of speaking to someone that will cause them the most hurt. I know this when I was younger with my sisters, for example. I knew exactly what to say that would cause them the most hurt at any given time. If I felt like hurting them, I could say one word, and I knew that would send them running away, crying. That's a slur. It's a a taunt or an insult. You single out something about a person... Sometimes it's their race, sometimes it's their handicap, sometimes it's their economic situation. It can be anything about a person, and you can cause a world of offense and hurt with just one word or with just one phrase. That's a slur. A man of integrity doesn't use those slurs to gain advantage over someone else. They're not interested in putting someone down and holding anything against someone and causing that sort of deep hurt with so quickly, with one word. The worshiper who draws near to God then, in summarizing these, is the one who knows that their tongue is a restless evil and so they tame it. They refuse to hurt their neighbor with their tongue because they know that if you don't love your neighbor, it shows that you don't love God. They love God and they love their neighbor and so they express that with their words. So we examine our lives. How do I treat my neighbor with my words? Do I have control over this tiny little muscle in my mouth? Is it submissive to God? And the last three... The last three characteristics that begin in verse 4 are all about putting, you might say, your money where your mouth is. So truth begins in the heart, it comes out through the mouth, but it must also be seen in your deeds. Your deeds need, need to be consistent with your words, which is consistent with your heart. And so these last three are about deeds. Putting your money where your mouth is. Yes, it's hard to control your tongue. But in some ways, it can be easy to talk and harder to follow through on that talk with real tangible action. So integrity despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord. So integrity doesn't, in the words of Psalm 1, walk with sinners, walk with or sit down with mockers. Integrity doesn't associate with those whom God does not associate. Now we need to be careful about how we apply this. Our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, associated with sinners. He associated with those who were down and out. Those who were, who felt beat up because of their sins. And we should do that too. But there were among God's people, yes among God's people, in, in Israel, those who were hypocrites and who cursed God. And they, they were sometimes people of power and influence. Sometimes it was even the king who was the, the, the one who was most like this, the most vile. These people are no friends of integrity. And so the man of integrity does not find his friends among those who curse the Lord. Instead, The man who dwells with the Lord finds his closest friends among those who fear the Lord. They have that bond. It doesn't matter what it is or what situation those who fear the Lord are in. And often those who fear the Lord are not going to be the most popular people around. Serving the Lord with integrity doesn't always give you the most friends at the end of the day. It doesn't lead everyone to like you or to like everything about you. But integrity sees that this person fears the Lord and, and first of all wants to serve Him. And so they find themselves among those people. The person of integrity isn't concerned about being at the top of the heap at work or at the top of the social circle at school. The person of integrity is concerned about being on the top of the holy hill, communing with God. Integrity also, moving on to the second one, keeps its word keeps his oath even when it hurts. Yes, there's sometimes you can make a promise and the following through on that promise is going to hurt. Sometimes it's a lifetime of hurt in following through on that promise. But if the man of integrity says, I'll do it, he does it. If he says, I promise to love and to be faithful, then he's going to continue to love and to be faithful, regardless of, of what the other person is doing. If he promises that he's going to repay a debt, then he'll be there with the money, even if it hurts. He keeps his oath even when it hurts. And finally, the third, he literally does put his money where his mouth is. If his friend's in need, he's going to lend money to him, and he's going to do it in a way that's not meant to make himself rich, but which is meant to help his neighbor out, so he's not going to charge interest, and certainly not exorbitant interest. Relationships matter more to the man of integrity than his wealth, and so his wallet is an extension of his heart. So this is a picture of integrity and what the man or woman or child who would draw near to God looks like. A life of integrity, yes, is a life that reflects God's character. The character of the three times holy God of whom we sang at the beginning of the service. God is holy. All of his ways are holy. God is the picture of integrity. And so he calls all of us to be holy, as Peter wrote, "But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written: "Be holy because I am holy." And so we have this clear picture of what integrity looks like and who may dwell with God. Now, recognizing, first of all, that integrity really does matter in communing with God. And second of all, what integrity looks like, it leaves us, it leaves me at least, with a big dilemma. What about my lack of integrity? What about where I'm not speaking truth in my heart? And that lack of truth is coming out in my tongue comes out quick. It comes out often. What about where there's lots of things that you can say, and especially as a preacher, you say a lot of things, but you don't always follow through with your deeds as you want. What do I do about my lack of integrity? What do you do about your lack of integrity? Does this mean that you stand at the bottom of the hill, not communing? with God, and living a life of separation and failure. We need to consider that. If we examine our lives by this psalm, we realize that in many ways this psalm is overwhelming. It can crush you. So you recognize your unworthiness to ascend into communion with God. But we need to consider this psalm in its truth and its fullness. And one of the truths about this psalm is what's written there right under the title, or right under Psalm 15 in your Bibles, where it says a psalm of David. psalm of David. Now consider David. David, yes, a man after God's own heart, a righteous king. But consider also David's life. David was a man who murdered one of his closest friends one of his mighty men Uriah a man that had had helped him battling against Saul a man that had helped him ascend to the throne a man that that was crucial in all of in his victories put that man to death why because he had already committed adultery with that man's wife david as we see his life go on Lost control of his kids. Lost control of Amnon. Didn't punish him when he raped his sister. Lost control of Absalom when Absalom rebelled. David did not have this perfectly unified, upright, moral character. How did David ever hope to ascend to the hill of the Lord? On what basis, on what merit would David stand there before God? But the reason David could dwell with God, and he did, the reason why David could dwell in God's sanctuary and and live on God's holy hill was actually not about David at all. It wasn't about David. It's about the Lord. You see, the way to draw near to God in worship is not to stand on the merit of your own righteousness, but to stand on the merit of God's mercy, to stand on the merit of God's mercy. And for the worshiper who would go to go to the tabernacle and later the temple, this would be immediately clear to them. You don't stand before God. You don't dwell before God on the basis of your own merit and perfection. You dwell before God on the basis of His mercy. Do you know why? Do you know what stood in front of the tabernacle? What stood in front of the temple? Do you know what the way in coming to God was? What was there? It was the altar. It was the altar of sacrifice. When you came before God, you acknowledged your sin. You acknowledged your lack of integrity, you acknowledge that this psalm does not speak about your life in every way. You come before God on the basis of His mercy and you trust that through the sacrifice of that animal, God will not hold your sins against you, but will accept you into His presence. Well, what the sacrifices that David offered pointed forward to was the great sacrifice in which we stand, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice. He was a man of integrity, Jesus Christ. You read this psalm, it's like it's talking about him. His walk was blameless. He did what was righteous. He spoke truth in his heart. He never hurt anyone with his tongue. He didn't cast a slur on his fellow man. He didn't harm his neighbor. He didn't slander. He was the object of slander and harm and slurs. He despised hypocrites. But he loved those who were humble before the Lord, who feared the Lord. He kept his oath all the way to death. He kept his oath even when it hurt in the ultimate sacrifice, experiencing God's judgment against all our sins on the cross. He wouldn't accept a bribe against the innocent. He was the innocent against whom the bribe was given. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord on his own merit? Jesus Christ may ascend to the hill of the Lord on his own merit. Jesus Christ climbed the hill of Golgotha and offered his perfect life as a sacrifice for our sins so that in him we can commune with God. We can dwell in God's sanctuary, experiencing all of God's blessings of love and mercy. Jesus Christ is the way to God. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of this psalm. To allow all who are united with him, all who find their life and their merit in his sacrifice on the cross, to draw near to God and to live in God's presence all the days of your life. To live forever on God's holy hill. But that's not all that this psalm teaches us about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for our sins, in whom we draw near to God, he is also the renewer of our lives. Yes, this psalm describes Jesus Christ. And as we live in Jesus Christ, more and more, this psalm describes us. This psalm describes us. Jesus Christ as we rest in a sacrifice in the presence of God, changes us, and He changes us from the inside out. He changes our hearts so that it affects our tongues, so that it's carried out in our deeds. And more and more, our lives become integrated, become unified, become upright in all that we do. When you live before God through faith in Jesus Christ, God changes you from the inside out. He changes your heart. He reigns in your tongue. He changes your thoughts and deeds. He gives you integrity. Through the sacrifice of himself, Jesus Christ brings us into communion with God. And through communion with God, Jesus Christ makes us more and more like himself. He gives us integrity. Not on our own merit. By his grace, he makes our lives more integrated with righteousness. More and more. It doesn't happen to everyone in the same way. It doesn't happen to everyone at the same time. We don't all begin at the same place. And so you shouldn't judge your integrity by someone else's integrity. You shouldn't feel bad or terrible because someone seems to be so sanctified while you are just beginning. We stand before God on the basis of Christ's merit. But as we do so, with each one of us, as we commune with Him by faith, each one of us, He moves along this path. He moves us into integrity. He changes our hearts, purifies the sin, and brings out, Deeds of love. Jesus Christ, in his moral perfection, is beautiful. And what Jesus Christ does as he changes us, is he makes us more and more beautiful in the eyes of his Father. He takes the broken and cracked walls of our lives. We wish there was a nice wall of integrity in our lives, but we know there's all sorts of holes in it. But he takes those and he, he fixes them up. He repairs them. He patches them up so that more and more, we're not shaken. More and more, our life is integrated. More and more, as we face the trials, the tribulations of this life, we find strength. We find strength in what Jesus Christ has done for us and who Jesus Christ is for us. We find strength in what Jesus Christ is doing in us as he changes us. and He makes us strong. When you walk with Jesus Christ more and more and more with each day, you will never be shaken. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.